Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week is a really fun one. I am interviewing author Ben Rader. Now, Ben was an author that I read as a kid. Uh, his books are certainly not kids' books. They're adult mysteries, funny, funny mysteries. One uh, with the Blanco County series follows a game warden, but he does a lot more than just that. He's you know solves solves murders and and all that kind of stuff too, and has some really fun and funny characters doing some really wacky stuff. And then he's got his um, Roy Ballard series. It's a, a little bit more serious, but definitely still has a lot of jokes to it as well. You'll see he's a, a funny guy to, to talk to. Uh, but like I said, I, I read him as I, I was, you know, as a kid. I uh, read a lot more as a child. I still read, but not as much as I, I used to. But he blew my mind in this interview because he's going to tell me about how I wrote him as a 14-year-old I wrote him an email asking him for his autograph, and you know now as a 30-year-old doing this podcast, he was one of the first people I thought about when I wanted to, to interview an author, kind of the behind the scenes, definitely a, a well-known author and one that's uh, won quite a few awards as, as well, but just that he remembered that email, he actually sent me the email later on, blew my mind, but uh, we're going to talk about that, we're going to talk about how he got his start in writing, how he became a successful writer, his transition from being a traditional writer with a publisher and a, you know the the company and the editor and all that kind of stuff, uh, now to being self-published. Of course, still editors, but doing most things through ebook and, and Amazon and, and that area. And why he made that uh, change. We're going to talk about some advice he has for for people who want to. Uh, kind of follow that same path as he did uh, i think that his his advice is, is pretty blunt uh, I, I i like that he uh didn't really mince words with it uh, but it, it was an amazing conversation i think you'll really enjoy this uh, whether you're someone who just likes to read books whether you're an aspiring writer whether you're someone who you know is a, a ben raider fan and you're just listening to hear some of his behind the scenes i think uh, i think you'll uh, you'll learn a lot uh, regardless of, of why you're here. But glad you're here. And uh, here is my interview with Ben Rader. I am here today with author Ben Rader. How are you, Ben? Great. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. You bet. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we, we know you from, from a lot of really, really cool books. Uh, but tell us a little bit about yourself outside of, I guess, that, that writing sphere. Okay. Well, I... Uh was born and raised here in Austin. I live just outside Austin now, but I grew up kind of not really in the city, not really in the country. I was just kind of one of those kids that back then anyway, you know, rode dirt bikes and played in the creek and that would go, go in town. Oh, I say go in town because, you know, we always lived kind of right on the edge of town or further out. And, uh, but I ended up going to UT, the University of Texas, like just about any Austin kid wants to do. And, but I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living or, you know, honestly, I didn't have any real interest. I, I, I was always a fairly good writer and, but I was studying German. My grandfather had been the head of the UT German department. I thought, well, I'll be a translator. 
I enjoyed German. I always made A's in German, took four years in high school. So I started out at UT saying I was going to be a, a translator. Well, on some career day, they had you go speak to somebody. I spoke to this other translator. She said, you know, you generally need to speak something like eight or nine languages. And I was like, mm. yeah, I don't know if that's even true, but I was like, whoa, well, that kind of derailed that plan. So I was, I, I guess I had been, you hadn't, you didn't have to declare your major yet. So when time came, I became an English major just because I always loved English. Uh, I loved reading and writing. I was a big, big reader. Always made A's in English. But I started working at this ad agency as just as a runner, a delivery person to, uh, you know, take documents and stuff here and there. But I started watching what they were doing inside the creative department at the ad agency. And it was just, it looked like a lot of fun. And before long, a uh, position came up for a copywriter's assistant. And I went to the head copywriter. Her name was Mary Summerall. You might recognize that name from the acknowledgements in all of my books because she's now one of my editors. But um, I asked her, can I give that a shot? The copywriter's assistant. And she said, believe it or not, she said, sure. So I, I started doing that and just loved it. I was writing ads and brochures and radio spots and uh, just stumbled into this career that I loved. And it was just, just greatest luck. And I was doing things as a sophomore in college that graduates would have killed to do. I don't know if I even appreciated it as much as I should have at the time. But so uh, that's how I kind of just stumbled into this writing career. And then later on, you know, somebody said, well, my, my father had tossed my grand, my father-in-law had tossed me a copy of a Hyacin novel. And I just loved all the Carl Hyacin books, but people would ask me, well, you're a writer. Why don't you, why don't you write a novel? I'd say, well, why don't you write a novel? Now I, uh, I, so eventually I, I decided to go off and try that. And, you know, we can get into the specifics later if you want, but yeah. it's slow. I had been a freelance copywriter for many, you know, decades and it, the, the novel slowly replaced the the ad writing. And now, for, I don't know, five or six, seven years, I've been just writing the mystery novels and no more ad business. I loved it, but yeah. I enjoy the, writing the novels a lot better. Just no, no, no clients except, well, thousands of clients, but yeah. you know, none of them, you know, I don't have to answer phone calls and, right. you know, meet right. deadlines. Any deadline is my own deadline. And so right. that's kind of the, five minute synopsis of how I got where I am. Oh, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. So some, some of the things that you were talking about earlier that I want to kind of unpack one is, you know, that you, you went to, to, you started out in, in German, um, which is not maybe as, as strange as I think some people would think given Texas oddly has a really large German culture. I've actually been to, you know, the, I've been to Austin and that San Antonio area and there's yeah. a lot of like German towns and there's a whole German dialect. Do you know anything about all that? Oh, very much so. I mean, especially, well, all over central Texas. I mean, there's Frederick, so many Bergs, Fredericksburg, but Luchenbach, you know, all these German sounding names because yeah, there was a lot of German settlers here and there's still some folks that learned German from their parents or grandparents and maybe never took any in school. And uh, like I said, my grandfather was German and he moved over here in I guess it was 32 or 31 and worked at a bunch of different universities ending at UT where he became the chairman of the German department. And so that was in like the early fifties. Uh, so that was my, that was my interest solely. I, you know, 
I love, I love German. I could go over to Germany and get by as long as people spoke slowly, you know, I wouldn't understand anything, you know, that people are rattling as they spoke to each other as they passed by, but I could, you know, they, I, I could get by, but in honesty, in honesty, I should have taken four years of Spanish. Mm-hmm. I would be just downright fluent and would be using it, you know, mm-hmm. anyway. But yeah, there's a lot of, there's massive German influence all around Central Texas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I also took German in high school and wish I would have taken Spanish. My, yeah. my family's actually from Germany. My grandma moved here when she was in, uh, in her twenties. So that, right. that, that was the reason why I wanted to, but yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Spanish would, would have been more beneficial because pretty much, you know, that's years ago, but pretty much all I got left is just my Deutsches nicht sehr gut. Uh, it's about all I can really say. Yeah, I got I got a little bit more, but we won't go into that. I I can say just about everything, but I might not be able to say it. Like you know, if if I could, I might have to use a roundabout way of saying some things if I didn't know a particular word. So so real quick before we get to your books, you know, you mentioned that you you live in in Austin. So I've been to quite a few places in Texas, and I can tell you. Austin is, is quite different than most of Texas. So, I mean, is, is that true for, for those who, who live there too? Do you, I mean, does it kind of feel like a, a totally different world than the rest of, of Texas? Uh, yeah, very much so. I mean, it, it is. Everybody, it, that's one case where, you know, the stereotype or the myth or whatever you're going to call it is absolutely accurate. I mean, there are other, I mean, the, the most obvious thing without getting into it too much is the politics Austin is a much more liberal town and there are other towns that are, you know, possibly as liberal, but just not quite as much And Austin, but Austin is known for that. And, uh, you know, you will, you will get some remarks about that. And, you know, it's night and day compared to some, some towns, other towns. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to even get off into which one I prefer, but, but, uh, I mean, in Austin also though, has really changed a ton. I mean, uh, I mean, to the point you you get a lot of natives like me and my wife and long timers that complain about it. And, you know, there's, there's a valid reason because I can remember what it was like 40, 50 years ago. And it's just a completely different city. And it's still, you know, people say, Oh, but it's still a cool city. It's still a cool city. And that's true. And especially if you don't remember the, how it was, you know, I imagine people moving here, love it, you know, but they, and it's a different type of experience though. I mean, the Austin from the seventies and, you know, I, I don't really remember the sixties cause I was, you know, I was born in the sixties, but uh, you know, I remember the seventies. I remember the eighties just brilliantly. And uh, it was a great, great town and smaller, much, much smaller. And the skyline, golly, the skyline has just exploded in the last 10 to 15 years to the point. I mean, it's just, I gave up complaining. I mean, I'll comment on it, but I mean, there's, what's there to complain about? I mean, what, what can you do? There's no, you know, I grew up on this little two lane winding road that is now just a thick, I mean, for years now has just been thick with business. I mean, all the way from one end to the other. I mean, it used to be, you could get on B Caves Road, which is the one I'm talking about and drive all the way to the end of it with no stoplights. And we lived out about halfway when I would, if I would take somebody out there like a date or a friend or whatever, they would be like, where are you going? You know? And now it's like, it's just, people are commuting way past that. I mean, it's just exploded and it's, it's, it's easy to get 
nostalgic. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I understand that for sure. No, I, I get it. So let's, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about your books. You, you, you talked about, you know, how everyone was telling you, Hey, you should start writing books. You should start writing books. So what I guess made you finally get that courage to, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I think in 2002 is when you started. Um, and what made you just finally just bite the bullet and be like, I'm going to write something. Well, actually, the first one came out in 2002. I started in, a, I believe it was the 1998, because after it was actually after my my father-in-law handed me, gave me that Hyacinth book. And I just was like, this was, I mean, I'd always been a mystery reader, crime fiction, suspense, whatever you want to call it, Grisham, Stephen King, you know, but mostly, you know, mostly mysteries or crime fiction but I had never read anything quite like Hyacinth. I mean, that was just amazing to me that I was like, I I didn't know you could have so much fun with it, you know? And it was double whammy for anybody who wants to check it out. Hilarious, hilarious mystery. And he's just so biting and he just, they're just so refreshing after, you know, I mean, it's just a whole different world than say a James Patterson novel. So I started kind of thinking, maybe I should try to write a novel because people had encouraged me. Why don't you try to write a novel? You're a writer and you love reading. You, I mean, I was, especially when I was a kid, man, I used to just read constantly. I always had a book with me. I loved when the books would you'd order from Scholastic and the books would mm. show up in elementary school. And yeah. that was just the highlight. But uh, so after I read Hyacinth, I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll my, I made a New Year's resolution to attempt to write a novel. And you notice that's different than saying making a New Year's, New Year's resolution to write a novel. Mm-hmm. The word attempt was in there. So that way, if I failed, I could say, well, I mean, if I didn't finish the novel, I still attempted. <laughs> you know? So I met my resolution. So I started, I just decided I, I was going to write something kind of wacky and fun, but a mystery for sure, or crime fiction, however you want to call it. Um, and so the question then was, well, what is it going to be? you know, who's the protagonist. So I had to fill in those blanks and actually just immediately thought a, a game warden, a game warden would be great because he's in law enforcement. I did, you know, even though I was a hunter, I didn't really know uh, exactly what, I didn't know the full scope of their responsibilities and what they did every day other than, other than checking licenses and stuff, you know? So luckily I had a friend that was a, a, a biologist with the parks and wildlife department. He set me up to, talk to and ride along with some game wardens, especially one named Jim Lindeman, great guy, where he's still a great guy and answers a lot of my questions still, I pester him. And uh, I just learned everything there was about, or everything that I could anyway, about game wardens. And um, I was interested to, to see that, you know, they don't do just those things. There's a, a wide variety of things they might get involved with. And maybe I stretch it a little bit, but in like a sparsely populated county like Blanco County, the game warden is more likely to do things outside that traditional scope because there's fewer law enforcement personnel and the sheriff might say, yeah, why don't you go check this out? And whereas like in Travis County, I mean, the population of, of Blanco County is like, last I knew, I think it's like 10,000 and it's the county itself is about the same size as Travis County right next door, which has, I couldn't even tell you now, but it's got to be well over a million. It's got to be, it might be 2 million for all I know. Mm -hmm. So believe me when I tell you there's a lot of cops in Travis County. (laughs) I mean, they've got, you know, every little town, I mean, they don't need help. Not that they won't take it, but they don't need to recruit a game warden to come 
help with something, you know, other, that's outside, unless he's, he or she is already working on it as part of her, his or her job. But in Diego County uh, or any of these sparsely counties, you know, let's say a game warden is investigating, uh, you know, a poaching incident and it grows into something bigger. It's very, it's not uncommon for them to continue instead of passing it off to a deputy or, a, you know, a patrol officer, if, if it turns into to, to be something more along the lines where someone like that should investigate it. So I chose Blanco County, not only because it was sparsely populated, but because I had just recently bought some property there and uh, loved it out there. My sister lives out there in Johnson city. It's just a great, it's just a fun, great County. And there, I mean, the only thing it doesn't really have that I had to create for book two is a lake. There's no lake. And as many lakes as central Texas has, uh, there's none in Blanco County. So I created this reservoir, I called it. Now there's the Pernalis River, there's, and there's the Blanco River, and there's other river, creeks and rivers that run through there, but none of them are dammed up enough to have a lake, you know? Mm. So, and I don't know how much your listeners know about central Texas, but we've got lakes and big lakes, you know, but they're all like in Travis County and Burnett, and they kind of wind just up past Blanco County. So so you started with, with the, the game warden um, and you've written, I believe, 15 Blanco County books already, six uh, of another series of, of Roy Ballard, and then those two standalones you're talking about. So if, if, if the first one came out in 2002 and you've, you know, you've written, what, another 20 plus, I, that, that's, that's at least a, a book a year. So you've stayed relatively busy. Yeah, the first six were with... Uh... St. Martin's in New York, the publisher, and, uh, you know, you had a deadline and we, it wasn't quite as fast, but maybe what, 10 years ago when the Kindle was taken off and Amazon was taken off with their publishing, when I, it kind of got to the point where the the books did fine and I could have continued with St. Martin's. They offered a contract for the seventh book. It wasn't a real enthusiastic contract. And, you know, most writers, I'm, I'm very lucky for one thing, I should say that. I know you've been a reader for a long time. In fact, I see, I look back at an email you sent me from 2006. So I pre- really, yes, you sent me an email in 2006 ask, asking for my autograph. Do you not remember that? I don't. That's really cool. You must not have done it. <laughs> no, I'm sure I did. I know I did. You do it's just all coming back to me. You're 100% right. And I absolutely have that. That's hilarious. I do not remember that. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I owe a lot to you and all my other readers that, you know, allow me to do this for a living. I mean, I love it. I'm very fortunate, but most authors, and it's no reflection on their work. They don't get to make a living at it. It's just, that's the hard reality of it. And there's a lot of luck involved a lot. And so I happened to be at this perfect juncture where I could have continued with St. Martin's. Honestly, if I hadn't been in the ad business, I might have continued with them because this is kind of a weird little area to get off into, but there's a certain amount of like, you know, let's face it, ego stroking. When you walk in and see your book on a shelf of a bookstore, it feels great, you know, and that alone, and there's nothing wrong with that. People need to have confidence and do things that make them feel good. And there's definitely, you know, I remember the first time I walked in and saw my book on a shelf and it was just, ah, oh, what a rush, you know, and my wife was giddy and we went in there and 
But there's also, you get a lot of that in the ad business, especially when you're a 19 year old kid and you hear your radio spot on the radio. And uh, so part of the thing you get from the books on the shelf of the big store, I was already getting from the ad business, this kind of nice feeling of seeing my work in public, seeing the reactions to it. So I had less incentive to want to continue, you know, with that playing any much of a, you know, factor into it. So it was basically like, why do I want to continue? You know, they're making like, it's a lucrative hobby, you know? And so I said, no. And I went off and wrote this other time, the Roy Ballard speculate, you know, on speculation and showed it to my agent and she was pretty lukewarm about it. And that she probably would have pitched it if I had pushed her back. She was a great agent, but she was like, I thought this was going to be a thriller. And honestly, I, I don't even try to, I just write what I want to write. I don't really care where it fits, you know? And no, I guess it's not a thriller, but, uh, but right then the, the Kindle was coming out. And honestly, I think a lot of publishers didn't, or anybody, nobody saw where it was all going. What I did was get the rights back to those first books, all except one, Gunshy. But I asked for the rights back. Most of them were out of print. When that happens, they just give you the rights back. Now, in hindsight, I'm sure St. Martin's would have loved it if they had the foresight to go, no, let's put these back in print because these rights are going to be valuable again because this ebook thing is about to take off. But they didn't see it. I didn't see it, but I figured no harm in getting the rights back. So what a lot of authors were doing then were getting the rights back, meaning St. Martin's could no longer publish it. Now I could publish it directly myself or shop the rights to somebody else or whatever. The rights were back. And I don't mean copyright. I mean, publishing rights for your, for your listeners. There's a distinction. I always had the copyright, but when you sign a contract with a publisher, you're giving them the right to publish that book. Mm-hmm. And until that contract ends. There's always a reversion clause. If it's out of print or if it's not selling a certain number, blah, 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 you can get the rights back. So I got the rights back and put them out myself just for grins directly to the Kindle on Amazon and some other platforms. And just to see, well, I wonder if I'll make any money, you know, and it was slow at first. And I mean, it was real slow, but then it was like a lot of us were going, wow, this is, this is kind of cool. I could see my numbers on my account on Amazon clicking, you know, not, I mean, like you refresh it through the day and I was like, Hey, I got a sale, you know, and that's a rush, you know, when you, and then, and it was very modest at first. And I can't remember at this point how quickly it started to pick up, but it was quickly enough that I was like, this is going somewhere. And so even though I had written Holy Moly, the sixth one in the series, basically as a farewell, it wasn't like, you know, so harsh of a farewell that I couldn't come back to it by any means. But I thought, well, this is the last one. And I kind of wrote it with a nice little thing that ended that thought, if this is the end, this will be the end. But after I, my agent passed on publishing the first Roy Ballard, I thought, well, I'll put, I I was almost relieved when she said, no, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I, I can't even remember what she said, but it was like, again, if I pushed her, she might've, or I probably could have gotten a different agent to pitch it. But I said, I was actually kind of relieved, like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to put this one out myself. It was exciting. Mm -hmm. And so I was happy about it. And I put it out and started uh, writing the next Blanco, you know, this is hog heaven back in, I can't even remember when, probably 2010 or 11 or 12 or something. But I started, I started going back to them and it it kind of, I mean, Amazon totally and completely rejuvenated my 
my writing career for novels. And I'm not talking about the ad business, but, uh, and you know, a lot of people have criticisms, criticisms of Amazon justly for some things, but when it comes to their, if you just look at their publishing branch, and again, there's a lot of people in the business that absolutely hate them. I don't want to get off into the weeds too much about that, but nobody, nobody has given me the opportunity and the reality that Amazon has and th- there's a lot of people that make money off books, a lot of people. And when I first got into it, and all of these people deserve the money, but the people that were making them making a living, you know, in a career were agents and editors and publishers and publicists and the people who, you know, bookstore managers and employees, the people who drive the trucks that deliver the books. Oh, what about the authors? Well, there weren't many. I mean, hardly any, hardly any. And it seemed kind of weird to me when I'm going on tour, taking time off so I can go tour for this book and make a very modest amount of money. I kind of thought about that. I was like, all these people I'm meeting, meeting in the business, they're all making a living at it. You know, why are no writers making a living at this? And that was just the reality of it. You know, my experience just mine with Amazon is just, it couldn't be any better. They have delivered this dream for me. And uh, if the traditional world wants to compete with that, they need to find a way to do it. And I'm not, that's not all about the money. I'm talking about reaching readers and mm-hmm. having your own and being, uh, being autonomous, having your, you know, not having to answer to a lot of people, just setting your own schedule. I, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've been self-employed for 30 years and in the ad business and then now. And uh, at one point, about three or four years ago, there's a very well-known songwriter with a very well-known song that they wanted to write a novel about. They wanted to turn this novel into a song. And uh, an agent that I know recruited me to like get involved. And there had been some other writers involved. Ultimately, it didn't work out. I, I had an idea that it should go this way. The songwriter, I don't think quite saw it that way. And so ultimately, I just finally said, there was no contract even. I mean, I finally just said, okay, well, I, I, this, is, you know, I, this isn't for me. I mean, we, we don't see eye to eye on this. That whole creative difference thing. I've never had that with anybody mm. where it's like ended something. But I, And I was so relieved when I got out of that because it was like, mm. I'm having to answer to other people and go to meetings. And instead of just getting up and writing and doing what I want to do, you know, mm. on my schedule. And that's one of the great, great benefits. It's like, I try to write a novel. I try to put one out every nine months. And pretty much I've done that. I think it's every nine. Yeah, about every nine months. And, uh, but if I choose not to, I can do that. You know, if I choose to do it at six or a year and a half, you know, I, I'm sure some of my readers would be bummed and they'd be going, Hey, when's the next one? They're doing that anyway at nine months. And then I know some other authors who crank them out every, I know an author that puts out an novel about every four or five months. Mm. And literally if he had a publisher and wanted them to put them out that frequently, they probably wouldn't. Now it's one thing for James Patterson where you're selling I don't even know how many, probably 5 million right off the gate, you know. So they're going to put out as many as they possibly can as quickly as they possibly can. 
here, here's to put it in perspective. I started writing my first book in 98. I finished it in August of 99. So it took me like 20 months. And it's not a long book because there was no hurry. There's no, there's no hurry to finish when the only person waiting for it is your mother. You know, that's what I always tell them at the library. And they, they laugh. Uh, but um, so then it was shopping for an agent because that's how you did it back then. I couldn't just put it out. And if I had back then, if I hadn't gone this route, I don't think I would ever, self-publishing wouldn't have worked for me because I had no name. I didn't have a reader base. It was the combination of having built this series and then went on my own that worked for me. That, that's the luck I'm talking about. But so in 90, August of 99, I started an agent search and I think I got my agent in, let's see, it was May of 2001, I believe. But uh, anyway, I got the deal. It was, I think that was like in June of 2001 and it didn't come out until September of 2002. And that's pretty fast. You know, normally sometimes it's two years, but it was a two book deal and blah, blah, blah. So it came out in 2002. And then after that, it was about a book a year. It seemed like, although there were some that there was one where it was like nearly two years when between like fourth and fifth, they're always, they're always of course wanting you to, increase your sales. And there's not a lot you can do that as an author other than what you write. And uh, so they're always like suggesting you write a bigger book. And at first I don't even know what that means, you know, but it means like bigger stakes, bigger themes, you know, big, bold characters. Like, you know, when you think of say, you know, thrillers are often big books and it doesn't mean, doesn't necessarily mean better book. It just means a bigger book, like some, some evil person is somehow plotting to take over the world. That's a big book. That means it's going to be a good book, you know, but versus just some little character study or something where you're just following one guy and his tiny little struggles and his small life, you know, or, or quiet life. That's not a big book, but it didn't, that could be the most brilliant book ever written depending on how it's written and what it's about, you know, but so they're always telling you to write bigger books. And uh, we kind of tried that, but it took me a while to, that's where I did explore a little bit of politics in my books. And other than maybe some few snarky remarks every now and then, I don't really get into it. I just want to have fun. I want to write about fun stuff, but gun shy kind of got into the whole gun thing. I kind of tried to like make fun of both sides and examine both sides. And although it's not like, you know, just overwhelmingly political, it's still fun. I hope. So that, that one, it took a year and a half or two to, get to gun shy and then holy moly it wasn't political but it's about the whole religious thing and that was kind of fun about a televangelist and you know yeah yeah and i think just the the story of being able to kind of take that that power back there's so many people out there that are basically you know really making money off of of your your work and being able to get that power is always a good thing so we're talking about those two series um there's yeah so do you kind of, I'm kind of looking at the, the dates. Do you go back and forth or how do you decide which one that you're, you're going to start writing or are you writing both simultaneously or how does that work? No, I, I go back and forth. And I, only one book at a time. Now I might have an idea for a book and go write it down, but no, I'm never working on two at the same time. I always just one and I just go back and forth. And, and honestly, I'm not, one, one series is, is pretty well outselling the other one. And uh, it would surprise you if I told you, I will, it's, it's the Ballard series. The Ballard series per book is, is, is significantly outselling the Blanco books, but the Blanco books 
are so beloved. I mean, I, I get more comments about the Blanco books and it's a lot, and it might just be simply because it's had so many, you know, things do tend to just slow down after a while, but so it would be tempting just to go off on the Ballard and I love writing the Roy Ballard. Those, they're, those are so much fun. They're, they're all fun, but uh, I think it just makes the most sense just to go back and forth. So that's what I do. And like, you know, many readers read both. Some readers just, I don't know, they just, one appeals more than the other and they, or they may start a blank on novel and just go, well, I guess this isn't for me, but they love the Ballard or vice versa, or they just haven't tried them, you know? So, but yeah, I just bounce back and forth. No, that makes sense. So, you know, you talked about humor and then also, you know, some of your, your inspirations, was it important to you to, you know, have humor within your books? I mean, I, I kind of see you kind of as a, probably a humorous guy anyway. So did it kind of just come naturally that that, that shown in your books or did you actually mean to, to make that happen? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I think in general, I'm a pretty lighthearted guy. I like to crack jokes sometimes at inappropriate times, but you know, like when I go to speak to a group, I'm, I've had people tell me, it may not come across in the podcast, but I've had people, Oh, you should be a stand-up comedian. Ha ha. You know, mm-hmm. And uh, and it's all the same old shtick that I've been telling for 20 years. So I'm pretty well practiced at it by now. But yeah, I like to, I, I, I don't, I'm not a serious guy. I can be you know, I'm doing my taxes or something, which I was earlier, but uh, I'm, I like, I, I, I like to like have a good laugh, you know, or I like to be amused or entertained. I like, I like it when somebody makes some, some funny remark that you weren't expecting during an interview on TV of some serious person. And they suddenly make a glib remark and you're like, Oh, that's funny. I enjoy that kind of thing. I, you know, and I want the books to be like silly and, but also unexpected. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was absolutely, that, that's why again, highest and kind of, kind of opened my eyes to the idea of, wow, that, that there is a bigger inclusive world of possibilities than I had expected, which is why I started to write to begin with. Cause I said, I can be wacky. Doesn't mean it's going to sell. In fact, uh, the first thing my agent said to me when she called me to her assistant had told me she wants to sign me on. So she called me and the first thing she said was I might be making a big mistake, but I like this book. Cause it was just so different. And she was like, you know, I mean, these were like, it's filled with Texas hunters and rednecks and poachers and weird people. And my agent was like this 70 year old upper East side, New York lady that had been from SAG and then SAG, had a home in SAG Harbor. In other words, the, it was just not her world at all, but she was intrigued by it just cause it was fun and different. And uh, without her, I, it never would have started, you know, so I owe a lot to her, but, um, so, uh, yeah, they, they, they just, they, I, I wasn't interested in, in writing just a serious mystery or a standard. In fact, at one point when they're, when I was still messing around trying to come up with this big idea, I did, I wrote, I wrote like half of a very dark, bloody mystery. And it was a, I liked it. I mean, I liked what I had written and uh, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have bothered me at all if I'd finished and published it and all that. In fact, I'm, I could always just go back to it now and put it out, but uh, it just, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been as much fun. I liked, I like to have fun. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to write something that when I read it later, because by the time I'm done, you know, and I go back to revise, 
I've forgotten a lot of it. I like it. I like it when I hit a line that makes me laugh. And it's almost like I don't I don't remember writing it. And I, I'm like, it doesn't even feel like I wrote it. It feels like I'm reading someone else's work. And so I like it when I hit a line. Oh, that's funny. Or when I'm writing one, I wrote one the other day. Oh, I can't remember what it was, but I was like, oh, that's a good. And it wasn't like, again, it was just like, it just popped into my head. I put it down. I said, oh, that, that's going to be a good one. That's a great line. Right there. <laughs> and it, so, yeah, I mean, I know it sounds pompous that I, I'm amusing myself when I'm writing it, but uh, you know, it's, it's a lot more fun than just not amusing yourself, you know? Yeah. So I, I guess that, that kind of brings up a, a good question. Um, do you, when you're writing these books, I guess, does it, do you all, everyone you're writing, do you, do you write it and think, you know, this is, this is top in the next one. Do you ever are like, uh, you know, this one's probably not as good as, you know, oh. such and such or, or how did, how does that work? All the time, all the time. I mean, there's always a literally in every book and I'm, about there in the current one I'm writing, I'm like, oh, this just, this isn't working. I don't like it. Well, part of the problem is I, I don't outline and I don't have the book fully formed when I start. I'm a spontaneous guy. A lot of authors, you'd be surprised how many do it this way. Just dive in. I have a broad idea. I think I might know who did it, but I might always change my mind because you're going to create in a mystery, you're going to create this world of characters that might have done it. Otherwise there's no mystery, right? So you got to have like three or four or five different possible suspects. And I might go, okay, it's going to be Joe right from the start. I know he did it and here's why. But as I'm writing it, I might go, Ooh, I don't know. Maybe if I made it Sue instead because of this. And so I might change my mind in midstream. And, uh, but so, and then I also have some other plots going on usually that seem completely unconnected but they end up connecting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But usually I don't know how or why or what one has to do with the other. So I reached this point where I'm going, I got to figure out how to tie all this together. It's got to, and sometimes it does fairly easily. Other times I have to go back and massage what I've written earlier to make it tie together later. But yeah. And so there's always a point where I'm like, this is useless. This is just to make any, these are unrelated and this to make any sense or why would this suspect have done this? Or that's just not a very compelling idea. And then it always works out. I mean, it's worked out every time. I mean, there's not any unpublished books I've written. That, yeah. So, and I always feel like, yeah, this one was fine. This is a fine book, you know, it's not great. But then luckily when I'm revising, it always perks me up and makes me feel much better. Cause I'm like, Oh, that's funny. And uh, again, you know, these aren't like, the kind of books that are going to change your life or, you know, be studied in a college English class. I have two that might, there's the two standalones, I would say, if I were lucky, would qualify in that area. But these are just fun, page turning, I hope, mysteries. That's, that's all I want you to do is read them, flip the page, and want to keep reading because you're amused or entertained or you're in suspense. And I just want you to keep reading the pages. And that's all I try to do, you know? So the, I guess the, the next question I would have um, is advice that you would have for other people who want to be a writer. Um, you know, you can, you can answer that in any way, but I do want you to specifically answer one thing that I've always kind of wondered. And it is when people write series uh, books, but they write it in a way. And I think that you, you do too, that you don't, I mean, obviously it, it helps that you've started from the beginning, but I mean, you really could probably pick up, you know, book four and, and be okay. Um, sure. So how do you, you know, make a, 
you know, a conscious effort to make sure that it, it there isn't, you know, big plot points that everyone has to know from from book two to read book four. Um, and then just as as a whole advice that you have. Um, well, you know, in the series, like you said, you can pick one up and read it and there might be some references to earlier stuff that happened, but you they're not they're not going to be like such that you're completely confused or you might not understand the reference but it makes no impact on the book itself. Uh, and each, each plot is pretty much self-contained. Let me explain what I mean by that. A lot of times at one point the series was getting developed for TV. And one thing I learned work talking and working with the writer who was developing it is that one popular approach in TV. And I never really thought of this was to have like, if you have a mystery you've got one overarching mystery that spans the entire season for that TV show. And then one little mystery in each episode that is figured out by the end of that episode. But like, there's some, that bigger mystery might be, let's just make one up and say, okay, it's like, you got a character named Todd and Todd's parents look like they died in a car crash, but maybe something else went on. So as he's solving each little mystery, he's also learning about did Todd's, wait, did my parents really die in a car crash or did someone run them off the road? And he gets a little bit. And so hopefully by the end of that season, you, he solves that mystery. That's the bigger one or the longer one anyway. Well, the, the books aren't like that. The books, each one, I mean, you got characters that are in all of them, but there isn't a, there isn't some overarching mystery that would make you, if you dove in a book four go, I don't get what's going on with this thing because I didn't read these three. They're each self-contained. Now, again, though, you know, I might say make some allusion to this woman Marlon used to date and you wouldn't know who it is because that was in book one. That's not a big deal. You just assume, OK, well, he dated some woman. <laughs> it's not going to have any impact on reading this book now and understanding the plot or anything like that. So you can definitely dive right in. Um, and it, I think that covered that part. And then it's just general advice that man, that's a topic alone that could take an hour, but I'll just try to be real brief. First of all, if you're, if you're an aspiring writer, you need, to un, you need to figure out whether you're any good at it. I hate to say that, but not everybody's good at everything. I'm a terrible singer. I'm a terrible mechanic. I'm, I can't oh, that was draw. the next question. I was going to have you sing a few songs. That's not going to happen? <laughs> uh, no, unless you got a karaoke machine in there. No. But uh, no, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, you know, if I had this grand aspiration to be a artist, meaning to, to like an illustrator, that would be terrible. I mean, that would be a, 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 it, no matter how badly I wanted it, I would need to listen to the people that said, Ben, you're just not good at it. And that's okay. I'm, I'm good at some other stuff. And so if you're lucky, your aspirations match the things that uh, you're good at. Some people they're not though. And so they, are wanting to write when they really should go off and do this other thing that they're really good at. And so if you're writing and you're showing it to people and getting lukewarm responses and, or pitching it to agents and you're not getting some of them going, I really like this. It's not for me, but I like it. If you're not getting that, or if you're not at least getting some sincere encouragement that you should keep doing it, you might want to wonder, is this, I mean, is this the right area for me. I mean, I, I know that's rough, but I've judged some manuscript contests and there's a lot of folks out there that, you know, want to write and 
you know, it's just, it might not be in the cards and which isn't to say you can't keep at it and try to, you know, learn to write better. That's what the ad business did for me. I wasn't just like some fantastic writer and I'm, and I'm still not, I wouldn't consider myself. I'm still learning. I'm still improving. I hope, but I was lucky that uh, this interest that I had also opened a career for me, you know, and cause if I was, again, if I was trying to, if I wanted to be a tuba player, you know, just, I never was any good at any of that kind of stuff. I'm not a good mechanic. I'm, not, I'm just, there's so many things. I'm. I, in fact, this is really the only thing I'm good at. It, it honestly is. I mean, but I can make a living at. I'm a decent pool player, but I'm gonna, not going to be able to make a living at that. So I got very lucky in that. But it, but let's say you are talented and you're getting response. Uh, you need to uh, also be aware that it's, it's a it's a long shot, a massive long shot that you're ever going to really have any kind of success. Part of that is because there's just so many books being put out there, and there's many, many, many of them. That's another strike against Amazon that that probably shouldn't be out there. They really, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's published that you're like, eh. I mean, yeah. I mean, anybody can publish just about anything. There are some standards you have to meet, but as far as whether it is a good book, there's no standard for that. You know, you can publish, you can just say, this is a book full of nothing but the alphabet. And you can probably publish that uh, as long as it wasn't against their standards. So, uh, but so be aware, it's a very long shot. If you don't care about that, if you just enjoy writing and you want to put it out and you, I mean, go for it. And, and, and Amazon's a great resource for putting it out there. And there's others, there's, draft to digital, put it out to a bunch of different markets that go directly to Barnes and Noble, the, their website. I mean, I'm not trying to just sell Amazon. There's a lot of ways to put your book out there in print or ebook. Ebook for me is the big daddy. I mean, my print is nothing. Everybody buys ebooks. I mean, it's probably, probably 90% of my business and audio books outsell my print. I mean, print is just a tiny, tiny amount. There's just, it's just not going anywhere. Uh, but you can, I mean, once you got your, let's say you're writing and you're editing as you go. So you're done. You got your Word document. You're done. You literally just finished, but it's polished. It's formatted the way it should be, which isn't a big challenge. Once you're done, it can be on Amazon literally in hours. It could be, as long, you know, you got to get a cover done, but it could be, uh, they might go faster for people who have a sales record. But like, let's say you're at least by the next day or two, but mine are usually up. You know, if I publish it, if I hit publish in the morning, it might be mid afternoon and it's up for sale, you know, and uh, that's how fast it can happen. And then you, you know, you go about marketing it and there's some things you can do that work and almost nothing does though. There's, I could, you know, that's a different topic, but the vast majority of marketing efforts for books don't do anything. Hmm. Book tours, reviews, you know hopefully a bunch of your listeners will go out. I did this solely because I knew it would be fun and you're one of my readers and I like doing this kind of thing. But the idea, I mean, will it sell any books? I mean, the, the reality is, and this is just objective is probably not, but that's okay. This is fun, you know, and hopefully I'm helping possibly some other authors learn stuff. I'm giving readers a little look behind. And even if it's just, again, even if it's just fun, that's great. But as far as what sells books, very few does. Now, you going and telling your buddy, which you put over the years, if you've read my books, I'm sure you're the kind of guy that would go, hey, Bob, you need to read this. And hopefully, Bob, that's that sells books. So word of mouth sells books. But so no, you know, just know what, you know, I, as far as the actual writing itself, I guess I really haven't gotten into how to be a better writer, you know, just read, 
read, read, read. And if you're reading a mystery and you want to write a mystery, as you're reading all these mysteries you love, think about what's making this work. Why do I enjoy this? Is it because each chapter ends with a cliffhanger? Is it because I love the humor? Is it because the chapters are short? Is it because there's so little thick walls of non-dialogue, you know, just narrative? Because some people hate that. They like dialogue. They like to move along. Others love all the detail, like in historical mysteries of the clothing and the food. And, the, you know, that's great, too. So think about what it is you're enjoying as you're reading it and note that when you write your own, you know, so. No, no, that's all, all good advice. Yeah. And you, I mean, you blew my mind earlier because I totally, I still totally forgot about you know, emailing you so long ago. First, how did you find that email? Because I know I'm not using the same email address. Well, a lot of times when, I mean, it's, I do get plenty of email, but it's not so overwhelmingly much that I, I can't answer them. I answer every email anybody ever sends me, assuming it reaches me, but I answer every one of them. And so sometimes when I get an, get an email, well, if it's like Bob Smith, chances are real slim that I'm ever going to remember that name. All but right. Jackson Huff, I, do you go by Jackson or Jack? I go by Jackson. Well, I mean, it's a Jackson Huff. I mean, I'm always studying names because I'm looking for names for my characters and Jackson Huff. I'm like, that's a great name, you know? So I I probably thought that 15 years ago and it, I have a great memory. Uh Well, for some things, lines from books or movies 40 years later. And, but like Jackson Huff, I'm like, and so I probably, when you asked me to do this, I probably, and I save all those emails from readers. I've got this huge folder in in my email. Uh Because I, I just think it's nice to save them. I mean, I don't ever go back and read them, but occasionally if I go, that name sounds familiar, I'll search. Have I got an email from this person before? I was like, oh, that's right. I got one in 2006. And I went back and read it. And I don't, I don't remember that. I just, I remembered your name, but I didn't remember that you had asked me for an autograph. It was when I read the email from then, I was like, Oh, look, he asked me for an autograph. And I guess you were, I mean, you're a young guy. So you were probably even, obviously you were 14 years younger or 15 years younger. I don't know how old you were, but. Yeah, I was about 14 years old at that point. Yeah. It struck me as you were a student and uh, that's great. And I I was honored that you asked me for an autograph and I can't remember what I sent you. If I was any kind of nice guy, I probably sent you a book, but I guess maybe I didn't. Otherwise you probably remember that. You did send, you absolutely did send me something. I don't remember. I'll tell you, I was kind of a strange kid. I did things in reverse. Now I'm kind of uh, less, I guess, less involved, but used to, I would, you know, I read all these books. Um, I used to like pretty much every that year, 2006, probably every Senator in the, in the Senate, I sent, and ask for an autograph. So I have tons, like it was pretty oh, cool. Um, but your, your autograph is definitely in that box with all the senators oh, autographs. You so there you're you either, go. depending on how you feel, you're either in good company or you're in terrible company. Well, I have to say it tickled me when I saw that you had written me back then after this invitation and that, and then to know that young guy who asked for my autograph 15 years ago is now out doing his thing creating this podcast. And I looked at, you know, some of the folks you'd had on, I'm like, that is so cool that you're doing what you're doing and enjoying it. And that's, and that's the other thing to people like step up and ask, I mean, look, go for the biggest name and go, will you do this for me? You know, I want you on as my guest, or if you're a writer, go to the biggest agent on the bunch or the highest profile, you know, the one that represents the, all the top authors 
and and yeah, pitch to them. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, what, what's it, it can turn you down, you know? But um, I just thought I think it's really cool that you're doing what you're doing, and you know, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm I'm tickled by it all. I think it's great. Well, very good. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that, and I yeah I so no, um, you're you're one of the when I started looking at at authors um, that I wanted to actually to reach somebody who wrote, you know, something outside of their own life. You're one of the first pre- people I thought about. So. Well, I so, appreciate that. That's very uh, nice. Absolutely. So we're talking about, you know, these books, you said this, this may not sell a single copy, but let's just tell people where they can find it. Should they yeah. want to prove you wrong? Okay. Well, they should know first thing that uh, the first book in each series is free. That's mm-hmm. a little tactic that a lot of authors use called permafree. And if you've got a Kindle or a Nook or any kind of e-reader, you can go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Kobo, I think, and Apple iBooks and grab the first book for free. And if you don't like it, well, you haven't lost anything. And if you like funny mysteries, you're probably going to like the Blanco. And if you like more traditional, although still fun, it's Roy Ballard. He's, he's a He's not a private investigator, but he acts like one and does a lot of like insurance fraud investigation. And there's always some twists and turns. And again, it's just grab it for free. Look at the reviews on Amazon. It's got, I don't know, it's like 2,000, 3,000 reviews now or something. And, you know, see if it's for you. And again, you know, it it doesn't cost anything. So what are you going to lose? Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, but I have taken up a lot of your time. So I do really appreciate that that you've... uh... You've just been for reality, here. we got to keep it at a certain level or no one's going to want to listen. <laughs> right? Right, right. Well, hey, we, we, yeah, I mean, we do have to, to, it, there, there's a sweet spot with, with podcasts. So I, yeah. I don't want, I don't want to go beyond that, but I have really appreciated your time. Oh, uh, you bet. I enjoyed it. So that was Ben Rader. Hope you enjoyed that. Definitely really enjoyed speaking with him. It was just so cool. Like I like I mentioned, just kind of blew my mind that he he remembered my uh, my email as a 13, 14 year old, and just kind of the the full circle that that we're in now. Where you know I, I emailed him back then, one of my favorite authors growing up, and and now you know I, I spoke to him on the podcast. So you know it was it was just a cool thing. Um, I do recommend you checking out his books. Definitely, uh, I think that if you enjoy listening to him, you you kind of uh, would enjoy those books too. Um, you know, this kind of the the humor behind the the way that he talks is kind of like how the books are. Uh, they they definitely uh, have some some zany things happening in the uh, the Blanco County books, and then uh, maybe a little less, but uh, still some some funny moments in uh, the Ballard series as well. Check those books out if you're a reader of, of mysteries at all. Uh, if you want to check out, uh, you know, funny mysteries, or you've you've always liked those. I think that uh, you know Ben's books are, are ones to to uh, give a shot to for sure. Hopefully, if you're an aspiring writer, uh, you learn quite a bit from him. Like I, I mentioned at the opening, blunt advice. He didn't tell everyone to be a writer, and I, I think that's important because so many people, even authors I've had on before, kind of you know, mention just the, the ways to become a better writer and sometimes say hey, it just may not be in the cards and that's okay. Uh, but uh, I appreciate Ben being here. Appreciate you being here. Uh, if you are a, a longtime listener here, thanks for, for, uh, for coming back 
And uh, please do comment, like, subscribe, all that good stuff um, in the uh, ratings for Apple and for Spotify. Uh, if you're a Ben Raider fan and just listening to some behind the scenes, thanks again for, for being here. Hope you check out some of the other interviews. Definitely a lot of, uh, a lot of great people I've interviewed and a lot more great ones to come. So uh, stick around, if you will. Um, but, uh, yeah, thanks for being here. We'll see you next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.